Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Then they, the government piled on with doing a real uh, dirty trick, if you will, with the snitch from the jail. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We recently wrapped up the story and case of David Bomber, the man sentenced to over 40 years for a murder. A murder, he says was self-defence. And, as always, when we finish a case, we need to check in with the man they call the voice of reason. Michael Leonard of Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, is a defence attorney with decades of trial experience in the United States. And I sat down with him once again to discuss the case of David Bomber. Hey, Jack. How are you, sir? How's it going, buddy? How are you? I see you're in an office environment there. I can see whiteboards and all sorts of stuff going on there. Nothing on the whiteboard, yeah. so obviously not not busy at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> not much there. Uh, yeah, we're getting ready for a trial that starts on Monday in federal court. So Ooh. we've been uh, we've been operating fast and furiously. Uh, well, speaking of uh, trials and cases, let's talk about the latest one. Uh, of course, as we I mentioned to you in our last chat, uh, we were discussing a self-defense case, which is an interesting one when, when we come to self-defense, uh, as we always do. Let's start with your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's unfortunate that it wasn't handled a little bit differently from the start. Obviously, we know why. Uh, he was very drunk. Uh, they panicked. They had concerns about his custody case, but it was really, really stupid uh, what they decided to do. But of course, they weren't thinking clearly at the time. But I think if you eliminate that gross mistake at the beginning of the case, it really changes the complexion of the entire investigation, whether he even gets charged or not. You know what I mean? So it's really kind of one of those unfortunate things. You look back on your life if you're him and say, God, if I just would have stayed there. You know, of course he was going to get caught anyways. You know what I mean? So it's just really unfortunate the way they handled it. And then I'm sure you want to talk more about the case itself. He's gone, obviously, the self-defense. Now, this is interesting to talk about self-defense and and what the law perceives as self-defense. What does the American legal system perceive as self-defense? So in general, it has to be, you know, a clear 
imminent threat to you of bodily harm or death or to your dwelling. And you, the force you use has to be reasonable. It has to kind of measure up to the situation. And so that very fact-intensive question, you know, pervades a lot of trials. And of course, it's also from the standpoint of, you know, the person that perceives the need to use the self-defense, right? Their subjective perceptions. However, the force that they use must be reasonable from an objective person's standpoint, if that makes sense. I think it's interesting that there was purely just one stab wound. It wasn't like it wasn't a frenzied attack. It wasn't multiple, um, you know, because if you turn around and said, oh, it was a self-defense and it was like 10 stab wounds, you're like, well, hold on a second. That's a bit intense for a self-defense. Whereas this was a single stab wound to this gentleman, which actually wasn't fatal to start with. Of course, he got sepsis from the wound, which he suffered. Um, so again, in my opinion, looking at that, you'd go, okay, well, this, it, it's got that possibility of having self-defense because it wasn't obviously a frenzied attack. Yeah. I think you've hit on a, one of the key facts. I mean, if we accept his version of facts as true and he doesn't seem to be shading it. I mean, we'll never know whether, whether there really was that, um, scuffle where the guy mm -hmm. choked him out or not. But, you know, if there was three people there, two of the people say that's exactly what happened. And it seems to me a kind of a classic case of self-defense. I mean, seems like right head on a very good defense to this case. So, but the reason why, of course, they didn't win is because his credibility and that of his girlfriend were called into question and they were they were found not to be believable by the jury, presumably, uh, because of their actions on that night in the cover-up and not cooperating with law enforcement and not reporting it in a way that you would expect if someone really had engaged in self-defense. She finally suggested that I leave and she would call um, 911 um, to try to get an ambulance. I mean, obviously, you're not thinking very clearly in this situation. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, looking back and um, and going, should I should have done this, I should have done that. But, you know, you stab a guy in self-defense and then it, it, looks, it looks to authorities that you're running. Right. Why did your girlfriend suggest you leave? Because... Of my custody battle. The way we looked at it, I, I remember screaming, I'm never going to see my kids again. So that's what made her tell me to leave. In my mind, if I got charged with any kind of crime, there, there went me getting custody of my kids. And that's what ultimately happened. Um, so yeah, so I, I just panicked. Um, like you said, I wasn't thinking clearly and it overwhelmed me. Yeah. But the defense itself is extremely strong in that particular case. Uh, and this is obviously, and we come back to the, the issue we started with, is the fact of the running away from the scene and the lying as well that went on after that. You know, most people would go, well, why? Why would you do that if it was self-defense? You know, you literally could have just sat there, called the police, sat down with them and said, look, this is what happened. We were, everything was fine. You know, and then this guy just lost it. You know, I've tried to administer, because he said he tried to administer administer first aid with his T-shirt, took his T-shirt off and tried to apply pressure on the wound, et cetera, et cetera. So as you said, if that had all played out in that respect, you know, this could have been a completely different scenario in a different case. What, what you know, has troubled me and what has troubled a few people is then we have this issue that has come up seemingly six months later after this gentleman has passed away where there was reports of aggression had happened at the pool um, previous um, to, to the events taking place in the apartment, which is interesting. It's bizarre that that's come up six months later and not closer to when the actual whole thing took place. Yeah, you, you raise a, a variety of good points. I mean, number one, 
First of all, I think if you can go back factually and imagine that the police come to the scene because they've made the phone call and the police come there, you have two people, the two males, extremely intoxicated. The, the work, I mean, the environment where it took place would look like and be corroborative of a intense scuffle, right? There'd probably be marks on the supposed the, the defendant, who is now the defendant, but he, he really was the victim. There's probably marks consistent with the fact that he was attacked and would support what he's saying. And he'd probably be, you know, in a in a state emotionally that, you know, he would come across as credible to the cops if he could even be, you know, speak well with his with the alcohol he had consumed. But there's a there's a strong chance based upon all those facts and it being corroborated by the girlfriend right there at the scene at that time. He never gets charged at all. OK, so then we go to what actually happened and we've already kind of covered that. Um, but, yeah, it's what it seemed like to me is the prosecution recognized the potential strength of the self-defense case because they had him who's going to testify and his testimony would be corroborated by the girl, his girlfriend, who seemed to have never wavered her story despite intensive interrogation, never changed. So it looked like to me, it felt like the prosecution was worried that they might lose this one. And they went to some tricks that I think are unfortunate. You know, they did the, uh, they, they went to some, you know, weak evidence of uh, other alleged assaults, which a lot of judges never would have let that evidence in. Just because someone has some prior assault or battery doesn't necessarily mean it's admissible. It's not going to be automatically admissible. In this case, that probably had a, a, a strong impact upon the jury. Um, and then uh, the other thing, which we, you're, I know I know you're going to get to, then they, the government piled on with doing a real uh, dirty trick, if you will, with the snitch from the jail, which is just that. that Always a red flag. Put, Always a red flag yeah. when you hear jailhouse snitch. They, they, you you got to think that their case is pretty weak if they need a jailhouse snitch involved. Exactly. Especially in these circumstances. So they're sort of putting their thumb, as we say, on the scales of justice to, to try to make their case stronger. Um, so I don't know which of those facets you want to talk about, all, but all very good points. And clearly, would all have a substantial impact upon the jury's assessment of the evidence. I want to look at this, you know, these claims of the uh, aggression at the poolside and the fact that these statements and these claims and, the, in fact, the charges came six months down the track. Um, I think, as I said in the show, I mean, obviously I'm no expert. I'm not, I'm not a cop, never have been. I watch too many shows. But I would assume if there's been a stabbing in an apartment block, in a, an apartment building, the first thing you do is you, is you go door to door. You knock on the door of the other people in the apartment and say, hey, guys, there's just been a stabbing. Has anyone heard anything or seen anything that's out of place, you know, with this particular apartment, you know, who lives there? And at that point, then obviously people come forward and say, oh, we had an altercation at the pool actually earlier with that guy. He was drunk and aggressive and blah, blah, blah. But that seemingly doesn't happen because he doesn't get charged with, with these other, he gets charged with another three assaults and that doesn't happen for another six months. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, for it, me, that's questionable. Yeah, it's absolutely questionable. I mean, the stories from the people who are poolside, their stories seem to lack a lot of credibility and corroboration. But let's face it, it's not like every case is investigated like we might see on a TV show where yeah. they're they're knocking on every door. They're, you know, they're doing everything they can to solve this case. You know, they may have done a very cursory job of interviewing people from the apartment complex. You know, they had you know, essentially everything there contained within a room. Um, so they might not have been thinking, gee, what happened at the pool four to five to six hours earlier? 
they certainly probably would have done some direct canvassing right around the apartment, like, you know, the adjoining units and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, and then also sometimes cases, you know, they're sitting on someone's desk to investigate and someone finally gets around to, hey, you know, we need to develop this case. It's uh, obviously we charged it. He's not going to plea. It's going to trial. Send the investigator out, send the detective out. So that those are all definitely things that can happen. But in this particular case, again, it seemed like they had a weak case. They were concerned possibly about losing on the self-defense case or that they were the only witnesses testifying would say it was self-defense. And they seemed to be trying to put their thumb on the scales with whatever they could get, the weak pool encounters, the snitch, and then whatever else they could do to try to you know move the jury. All right, well, let's talk about um, jailhouse snitches because I did um, do a little bit on it in um, this episode, you know, finding out a few, just found out just a few of the cases that um, where jailhouse snitches have been used and and have been found to be, you know, obviously lying and, and using that to get lighter sentences themselves or favourable things within the prison. Have you ever come across this situation yourself in a, in a trial situation, like a jailhouse snitch? Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's one of those problems that was chronic, and I'd say, until five, 10 years ago. So I agree with you that it still is one of the biggest sources of wrongful convictions. However, you know, there's been so much attention focus on this jailhouse snitch aspect of cases that in, in the federal system, it's le- it's used a lot less frequently than in state courts across the country. But even in state courts across the country, it's come into disrepute because it is such a ridiculous scenario. I mean, and in the case we're talking about, it's similar to a lot of them that I've seen and also read about where oftentimes law enforcement, it's not just um, where Joe Smith comes forward and says, gee, by the way, I know something about the defendant. No, oftentimes law enforcement specifically sends the person in to target the person, to try to communicate with them, make contact with them. And then, you know, then of course, sadly, from my standpoint as a defense lawyer, if the person says they said it and it helps their case, the prosecution isn't questioning it, unfortunately. And he come up to me one day, and Cell was right beside me, and he walked up to me one day, and he said, why'd you do it? And I said, what the hell are you talking about, man? And he's like, um, why'd you kill the guy? I said, look, uh, I'm kind of going to talk to you about it, right? And after that, I tried to avoid the guy. Next thing I know, they moved the guy out of the pod, and I don't think nothing else about it. I was in the county jail. Next thing you know, I'm being transferred across town to the regional jail. And then I found out that this guy had jumped on my case. There's been so many cases where the same jailhouse snitch, I think you pointed this out in one of your summaries of this, the same jailhouse snitch has testified in numerous trials, right? <laughs> where he says, gee, not only did three years ago, you know, Jim Brown, you know, confess to me in, in lockup that he did this, you know, now I'm back in court two years later, three years later on a different defendant claiming that that different defendant in the present case, you know, gee, happened to mention to me and confess to me details of the crime. And of course, as we all know, there's a giant benefit to it. They're not doing it for fun. They're not doing it to be good citizens. They're getting an advantage. Either charges drop or or time taken off their sentences. And we're supposed to believe that they have some innate ability to elicit these confessions out of multiple people. You know, they just have this amazing uh, ability that people just want to unload all these crimes that they've done to this particular snitch. So, I mean, you know, and, and they you bring up a point like, you know, it, they, they say that um, when a, a snitch has been offered something, then that has to be available to the defence. Okay, this is what they've been offered. 
And and I've heard that you know the way some prosecutors will work around it, where they'll they'll say, look, I'm not, I'm not offering you anything right now for this testimony. We'll talk afterwards. So that at trial, when asked, hey, have you been offered anything for your, um, you know, testimony? They go, no. And they're not lying, you know. Exactly. Which is really, which is really troubling. You know, to me, it's on the, to me, it's on the borderline of prosecutorial misconduct. But again, these kind of things happen all the time, you know, and, and there's different variations of it. So you might not have a snitch. You might just have a cooperating witness who's not a jailhouse snitch, but they're cooperating in, in any kind of case. And the same scenario plays out where they come, they testify at trial, they either may be part of the same case or they might have other charges that have either been brought or could be brought against them. And this game where they get on the stand and the prosecutor says, have we agreed to any, you know, consideration for your testimony? Oh, no. You know, and, you know, um, have we discussed that? Uh, You know, some and sometimes they'll do that. Yes, we have. And in, you know, uh, has there been any promise or agreement that you'll get any time off or any particular consideration? Oh, no. And, you know, if that is to happen, who's going to decide that? Oh, that'll be up to the judge. You know, it's it's complete nonsense because we all know the prosecutor will make a recommendation to the judge for time off or the charges to be dropped or whatever or favorable treatment. And, of course, the judge is going to look favorably upon the prosecutor's recommendation. But a juror might not understand that's what's really going on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, obviously, as we know, he got he got found guilty. Um, his biggest issue, well, I mean, the fact he got found guilty is his biggest issue. But one of his issues he talks about is being um, charged with not only the aggravated malicious wounding, but also second-degree murder, um, being charged with both of those things. He seems to think that, that you can't, just, you shouldn't be charged or you can't be charged with those, both those crimes put together because it just doesn't make sense. 
Um, he sort of explained it to me, but I didn't really understand it. Do you know much about that situation? Yeah, the argument he's trying to make is that the elements of one of the offenses are included in the other. Yeah, And right. therefore, he can only be convicted of the one offense, which is a very strong legal argument to get for essentially one act. Like this case is a perfect example. You know, one act, which is a, a alleged stabbing, right? And to say that, no, we're going to consider that two separate crimes uh, a lot of prosecutors, first of all, wouldn't charge that, and a lot of jurisdictions wouldn't l- allow him to be convicted of both or to serve, you know, sentences on both. So that is pretty troublesome. I'm I'm kind of surprised that, in terms of the timing, that he's talking about that issue still winding its way through courts on a post conviction petition when he's been in jail for so long. I guess maybe no lawyer picked up on it or he didn't have counsel. But I'm I'm hopeful for him on that issue that he will win. And that actually sounds like a, a strong argument. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he got sentenced to over 40 years in, in total for, for this particular crime. So, um, again, an incredible sentence for what seemingly, as I said, it's a single stab. It's not a frenzied attack or anything like that. I mean, we had a case not that long ago because I was doing some research in Australia about self-defence. It was a case not too far from where I live where a guy stabbed two people, a woman and a man, multiple times. Like it looked like a frenzied attack to me, but he got off with self uh, on on the self defense law. I think there's a, I think there's a commonality. I mean, I I, I doubt that your self defense is very much different than ours. I think they're probably quite similar. Yeah, and really, what it always what it always comes down to is the particular facts and circumstances of that case. And you know, let's face it, oftentimes the credibility and believability of the defendant. You know, there's there's a huge difference, as you know, no matter who the person is, you know, when you make them a criminal defendant, how they come across, whether the jury trusts them, whether the jury finds their story to be credible, all that stuff. And I would like to make a, a couple of points about some stuff that's been going on because your story, I think, inadvertently brings up a case that's going on right now. I don't know if you've heard about it in New York, three or four weeks ago, a really celebrated case that's going on now that's drawn a lot of a lot of views from both sides where a former Marine, he might even be present Marine, but I think he's former, was on the, the subway. subway in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if your listeners know about this, but he's on the subway in New York. There's a guy who's kind of like more like a panhandler who's kind of messing with people, kind of bothering everybody, shouting obscenities, kind of getting in people's face did not punch anybody, assault anybody, but the the gentleman who's not a defendant interjects himself into the scene, chokes him out, just like what happened in the case you're discussing on your podcast, and you know continues the chokehold um, so so long that the guy dies. And so he was charged, and of course he's pleading self-defense. The latest on that deadly chokehold on a New York City subway. Another day of protests as the case could go to a grand jury this week. This morning, the man who put Jordan Neely in this deadly chokehold on the New York subway is expected to surrender to authorities. Attorneys for 24-year-old Penny saying in a statement, quote, when Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Daniel Penny and the other passengers, Daniel, with the help of others, acted to protect themselves until help arrived. And of course, in that case, the jurors are going to consider you know, what threat did the guy pose and was the force and the sustained force that he used, was that reasonable under the circumstances? A lot of people say, no, you know, you can't choke him out to death. Other people will say, well, you know, he wasn't attempting to do that. And I don't I don't know how your military is viewed here. It's uh, obviously it's still 
a divisive subject in America for a lot of reasons. But there'll be some jurors that are, will be predisposed to never convict him, you know, despite whatever force he used. And there'll be other jurors who are, are decidedly anti-military mm. and will keenly be maybe against him for that reason alone. That's why the jury selection process will be obviously crucial. Mm. Um, and then the person's military training in, in the celebrated case that we're talking about is going to go both ways. On the one hand, people and the prosecution is going to argue that he's got a lot of knowledge about how to apply that technique and the consequences if you apply the technique. He'll know, yeah. presumably, that someone can die from that hold. So it may work to his detriment, you know? John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement analyst, says the chokehold banned by many police departments is used by the Marines. The blood flow is restricted to the brain, causing the enemy to pass out. This is something they're supposed to use on the battlefield, um, and they're trained in that. It's not supposed to kill somebody. Um, but it'll be, it's gonna get a lot of attention because not only did that case happen, but then it was followed up by another subway case in New York, where again, the issue is going to be self-defense. So this is, seems to be at the forefront, particularly when we have a society here in America, just like a lot of places where there's so much violence, right? Mm -hmm. We are fed up. So in some ways, jurors are more sympathetic to someone coming to someone else's aid and may be willing to walk them with a not guilty jury verdict, you know? Just after eight o'clock Tuesday night, police responded to a 911 call reporting that 36-year-old DeVictor Udrago was stabbed in the chest as the subway car he was riding in approached Marcy Avenue and Broadway. Police are now saying the victim, the one who was stabbed on the J train in Brooklyn on Tuesday night, was allegedly harassing people. 20-year-old Jordan Williams was escorted out of the 90th precinct by police after being charged with manslaughter and criminal possession of a weapon in the fatal stabbing of a 36-year-old man on a Brooklyn J-train. I mean, you said, obviously, a few weeks ago when we first discussed this that you recently had a self-defense case yourself. Can you discuss the details of what the situation was in that, that particular case? Yeah, it's funny because we just wrapped it up two days ago. So we had the trial about three or four weeks ago. And, and I'd really like to try something today, Jack, if you'll go along with me. I know uh. you're such a on-the-edge you know, type of guy, right? Yeah. Here's the factual scenario. It was a suburb of Chicago you know, kind of a upper middle class suburb, nice area to live, um, houses with nice grassy lawns in the backyard. Uh, there was about four gentlemen who went out to a local bar, pub, had some drinks. Everything was fine. They came back to one of the gentlemen's houses, were sitting out on his deck overlooking one of those grassy yards and drank some more for maybe two hours. And then right towards the end of the gathering, um, the person who ends up being the so-called victim in the case, punches the individual who is ultimately the defendant, punches him in the face a couple of times. Uh, you know, a scuffle ensues. They're sort of held back from each other. The individual who was hit in the face leaves, retreats to his house about a, a couple yards away. Um, and he's kind of in position, maybe 20 feet outside his house. The gentleman who struck him in the face is yelling, statements to him like he's going to come over to his house he's going to kick his a stuff like that right he's being held back uh the individual who was kind of standing in place outside his home at that point seeing the gentleman coming to his house goes in his house and comes a knife comes back out he doesn't go attack the other gentleman he he comes out and he actually announces that he has a knife he holds it up 
He's a little man. He holds it up in here, says, I have a knife, I have a knife. And he's quite smaller than the other gentleman who's threatening him. The other gentleman comes forward to attack him, starts to punch him, and um, and actually makes statements to him that he's not man enough to stab him. And ultimately, the smaller gentleman does stab him, and he continues to be beaten. And then, you know, after two stabs, uh, then the guy, the bigger guy, falls down, and the police are called. So the individual who used the knife and ended up being our client, our defendant charged with first degree murder and a lesser charge of what's called aggravated battery. So the case went to trial about three or four weeks ago. And on the most serious charge of attempted murder, based upon those facts, what I'd like you to do is put it on your Facebook or whatever and see what your listeners think would be the appropriate result in terms of a self-defense defense. Interesting. All right, we'll do it. We know what the verdict was. So I just want to see what your listeners think based upon those facts. Yeah, great. Um, Think that's detailed enough on the facts? Yeah, hundred percent. We'll put all those details up on the Facebook page, and we'll have our own jury. They've got to either find them guilty of first degree murder uh, or innocent. Is yeah, so it would be the, the the choice is based upon those facts. We'll, we'll start. We'll, we'll frame it this way: based upon those facts, would you accept the defense of self defense mm-hmm. and find the defendant not guilty of first degree murder, the one who stabbed the other gentleman two times? Yep. Um, so that would be that would be the question posed for the listeners. I'd love to see how they come out, and I hope I gave enough facts, and yep. then we know what the actual verdict was, so we'll kind of compare notes. All right, fantastic. Well, this will go up on the Facebook page and everyone can have their say. Uh, as always, Mr. Leonard, thank you so much indeed for your time. Uh, the next case we'll be talking about is uh, quite incredible. <laughs> gentleman by the name of Fred Freeman, uh, who now goes by the name of Timogen uh, Kenzu. He's been in prison since I was – four months after I was born, he was arrested, and he's been in prison ever since. Uh, for a murder, so uh, that happened 400 miles away from his location. Wow. At your age, Jack, that's a long time. Yes, yes, <laughs> very, very old, mate. Yeah, how old were you in 1986, Mister Leonard? I was uh, 1986. I was 21 years old. I was just uh, finishing my second year of college. I graduated from high school in 1984 and started college that fall. So I was a sophomore in college. There you go. And I was just a little wee bub. So you know. <laughs> You're not. You're not going to disclose your age, are you, Jack? You Thirty-seven know, this year, Mister Mister Leonard. Thirty-seven. I'm a young man. And, that's it. Uh, wow. Grey in my beard, though, from doing this show. That's for sure. So there you have it. We have a case for you all to become a juror on right now. I've put all the details of this case on our Facebook page with the details of the incident that took place. So you can head over there right now, have a read and place your verdict in the comments section below. And we'll catch up with Michael again very soon and see how the actual jury in this case voted uh, and just how close the OMR jury gets to the real one in this situation. As always, a huge thank you to Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois. We will, of course, catch up with him after our next case, the story of Temujin Kenzu. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. <laughs>